Well, we have come together to recollect, to commemorate, to rejoice in the most important event, the most important date in the Buddhist calendar, because today is uh, Vesak, full moon, Visaka, puja. And what do we celebrate, rejoice, recollect today? We remember the birth of the Bodhisattva in beautiful Lumbini Grove under the Ashoka tree, under the salt trees. We celebrate the supreme enlightenment, Sama Sambodhi, unsurpassable awakening of the Lord Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree in Uruvela, near the Nirandrana River, now known as Bodhgaya, sitting on what is called the Vajrivasana, the diamond throne, where he split ignorance thunder and uh, freed his heart from defilements and realized Nibbana. And we are also recollecting the final Parinibbana of the Lord Buddha lying with the head facing to the north between the twin side trees in the grove of the Malas near Kusinara. So three events, three of the four main events in the Buddha's life all occurred on Visaka full moon. So it's a little bit, if we compare it with Christianity, it would be like having Christmas and Easter and Sunday on the same day. So it's a really big, important day. And the central event of these three is Sama Sambodhi, the Buddha meditating all night under the Bodhi tree until he had cracked it defeated Mara, the evil one, and his whole army defeated defilements in his own heart, attachment, craving, desire, delusion, anger, hatred. And he succeeded in purifying his heart from all these unwholesome states. And he realized supreme awakening. And as a result of that, uh, the complete freedom in his heart called the highest peace called Nibbana. And that is a central one because if it wasn't for the supreme awakening under the Bodhi tree, then the birth wouldn't have been so special. And the attainment of great final Parinibbana as a natural consequence of the event under the Bodhi tree. Once a person has attained supreme awakening, and of course, when the body dies, naturally, Mahaparinibbana will occur. So for this talk, I like to focus on the events leading up to the supreme awakening under the Bodhi tree. Last week we talked how the young prince at age of 29 had abandoned the palace life, had broken out of the 
pleasure palace and rode away into the full moon night and started practicing as an ascetic. And he did that for a while. He had trained on two of the most advanced spiritual teachers who could teach him profound samadhi states. But uh, realizing that even the most subtle and profound samadhi is not yet the true end of rebirth, it's not yet the true freedom from old age, sickness and death, and the Buddha left these two teachers. And then he started what is very common in that time for spiritual practitioners in India. He started extreme ascetic practices that are saying, so to speak, like nowadays, have you ever been in the gym, training in the gym? Have you ever heard no pain, no gain? What does it mean? No pain, no gain. Yeah, if you really want to gain the muscles, you have to train so hard that it hurts, that it's painful. That is the idea. And only if you train so hard that you really have pain, only then you will have you know, the beautiful result of you know, looking like a bodybuilder or like a photo model or whatever. And you know, they applied the same principle to spiritual teachings. And they felt you know, that even in small things you have to accept pain to achieve some minor advantage. So for the ultimate greatest thing in the whole universe to attain enlightenment, they thought then you have to undergo the greatest possible pain. This is what they believed in. And so many ascetics and even the Bodhisattva, before he became the Buddha, believed that and the Bodhisattva started torturing his body. For example, he would reduce the food intake and he would eat only one rice grain a day. And he tried different diets and he still didn't become enlightened from one rice grain a day. He would eat one kolo food a day. This is a kolo tree, the one which has lost the leaves there, right at the little gate. In winter it's losing its leaves. And it's a small food. It's actually the red date in Chinese tradition, Chinese red date. He would eat one a day, still no enlightenment. Then he would try to control his breath. And he would sit and he would hold his breath until his head would be extremely painful. And he would continue holding his breath until he thought his head would be exploding or splitting apart. In this way, he tortured himself in all possible ways, maximizing kind of the physical suffering, believing that this could get him out of sensuality. If you have been to India, you may have been in Prague Bodhi. You can still visit the cave where he did that a very narrow, stuffy cave where the sun is coming from the west. So in the afternoon, the cave gets really, really hot. 
And even nowadays, you know, there's a really intense, painful atmosphere in that cave. And he continued like that. And one day, you know, when he had to go to relieve himself, squatting down, he actually tumbled over and collapsed. He was so weakened. And when he almost died in a collapsing, he was rubbing his limbs to give him some strength, his arms and legs. And the hairs would come out because the root of the hairs had become rotten because he had no vitamins and no food. And he said, no, the Buddha himself described that. He said when he would touch his belly, he could feel his backbone because there was no, nothing left between the skin and front and the backbone. And when human beings saw him, he was very beautiful. He had the 32 marks of a great man. But by now he had wasted away. And when human beings saw him, they thought and would argue whether he looks yellow or whether he looks black or whether he still has got a somewhat beautiful complexion. So close to death. And fortunately, at that moment, he had an insight. He had an insight and he realized now, that this doesn't work. He realized he cannot torture the body more without dying. This is a limit. Any more torture and he would be dead without attaining anything. And he realized now, this is not the path. No pain, no gain doesn't work for spiritual practice. This is not the right approach. And then he had a memory, a memory came up in his mind from his childhood. Does anyone know? Exactly. He could remember when he was a young boy and his father was doing the plowing ceremony, the nurses got so excited that they neglected the little, little boy because they were watching the king doing the plowing ceremony. And when the little Bodhisattva prince was abandoned by the nurses, he just sat down cross-legged and he spontaneously attained samadhi, he spontaneously attained the first jhana, which is accompanied by rapture and bliss. And this is what he remembered. And then the thought occurred to him, wow, this state, this mind state, and how I felt after that, and how the mind was bright and radiant, this is so much better than this bodily exhaustion. Could that be the way to awakening? And the insight occurred to him, yes, this is the way to awakening. Samadhi. And he asked himself, why was I afraid of that happiness, of that rapture and bliss? Because that rapture and bliss that he experienced in Samadhi, he understood, is not central rapture and bliss. It has nothing to do 
with sensuality. And that rapture and bliss has nothing to do with unwholesome states, like taking revenge. Some people feel very happy when they succeed in taking revenge, but that is unwholesome. That is a happiness that the Buddha would avoid. Central happiness, if we have a big meal of our favorite food, we may feel happy, but that is central happiness. But what the Bodhisattva understood in this crucial moment, that the happiness from Samadhi is neither central nor unwholesome. And because of that, it is part of the path to a full awakening. And it is a pleasure which he should not be afraid of. It is a pleasure which should be developed. This was a great breakthrough which at that time hardly anyone who practiced spiritual asceticism in India could even imagine. So once he had understood that the rapture and bliss of samadhi is a crucial support for the practice of enlightenment, he immediately could see that with his half-dead body he could not attain proper samadhi. And he decided not to start eating again. Not for fun, not for pleasure, not to become fat, not to look like a bodybuilder. He would still eat very restrained, one meal a day, collected from alms food, and just enough that he has enough strength, so in the middle way, not indulging, but also not taking too little that he is weak. And then he gradually recovered strength, and then he came to the beautiful Niranjana River, and he found a beautiful Bodhi tree close to the river. And this is how you want to practice as a monk, because if a river is close by, you get drinking water, you can bathe, you can cool down in the heat in India. And there were some villages like Oruvela, which is also important. You can't be too far away because you have to go arms round. This place was just white. So the Buddha would bathe. He would receive the meal from Lady Sujata, another famous alms offering directly before Sambodhi, which she had prepared and we find from the milk of a thousand different cows, they say. And they came, she came to the tree and the Buddha on that day and it looked so radiant because he noticed, knew by intuition that this is the day when he will attain Samasambodhi. He looked so radiant that Lady Sujata thought he is actually the deva of the tree. So she offered him with great faith that milk-wise the Buddha would be eating that and she made great merit. There's only two meals which have this exceptional merit, the one on the day of Sambodhi 
and the other one on the day of Mahaparinibbana. And then strengthened by that, the Buddha would um, spend time in the afternoon, do some walking meditation, maybe bathing. And then he would go back to the Bodhi tree and a grass cutter offered him seven sheaths of kusa grass, which the Buddha would spread out to sit under. So the original diamond throne Vajivasana was actually in a simple kusa grass. But it became the diamond throne because the Buddha attained some Bodhi sitting on that. And then he sat down under the Bodhi tree and he made the famous resolution, Adetana, determination. Do you know what was the famous determination, resolution he made? Exactly. He would sit down, full lotus, and he would determine, even if my whole blood dries out and my body wastes away and only skin, sinews and bones will remain, I will not break this posture until I have attained supreme awakening. Sometimes people try to do that in their own meditation as well, but I wouldn't recommend it <laughs> unless you really have the power me and the build up. But the Buddha intuitively, he knew he is ready. There's is, is no point in trying to do something when one isn't prepared for that yet. It was a full moon night and he had the power me is fulfilled. And his bright mind and the intuition that told him that he can crack it that night. But nevertheless, he would have died at that moment if it had not happened. He would never have changed that posture if he hadn't attained enlightenment. So he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, facing to the east, to the river, and the full moon of Visaka would rise in the east over the river, and the Buddha would start meditating. He had already practiced samadhi, even in the afternoon. He had developed the jhanas, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, which is a peak of equanimity and mindfulness. And now he continued based on this peak of mindfulness and equanimity of the fourth jhana, and you developed the first supernatural superpower insight. He remembered his past lives. In the first watch of the night, they would divide both day and night into three watches of four hours each. And in the first four hours, the Buddha later reported that he spent you know, recollecting his past lives, not just one life or a hundred or a thousand, but many hundred thousands of lives, many eons going back, apparently up to 91 eons, when the very first traces of the karma which he is now still experiences never created. 
And of course, no, seeing this endless chain of life and rebirth circling as a human being, as a deva, as an animal, as a Brahma, and again and again dying, being reborn, dying, being reborn, losing all the family, all the loved ones, losing his parents, losing his children, dying and going to the next life. That's a very powerful experience of Nibida. He realized that continuing this circle this is not leading anywhere, but to just endless birth and death. And he felt you know, the strong feeling of Nibida and wanting to break out of that circle of samsara of birth and death. In the second watch of the night, the next four hours, he developed the next superpower, the next idhi, the next abhinya, and that is known as the divine eyesight. And in his internal supernatural eyesight, he could now see other beings, humans, animals, spirits, devas, of several world systems. There's a gigantic mystic vision, so to speak. And you can actually see how they pass away and how they get reborn according to their karma. So it's a very grand vision, not only referring to himself now, but to all beings. And he retained that power later as a Buddha. This is why he was always able to tell when anyone passes away where they are reborn. This is why he was able to tell if anyone experienced any happiness or suffering, any misfortune or what is normally called good luck, the Buddha could immediately discern what was the karmic cause in a past life. And he gave the simile, he says, it's just like if you're in a high building, looking out of a high-rise on a, a big public square. Like when you're Brisbane City Hall, and then you're on top, you're looking out, and then the big square in front, you see people coming out of the shopping center and going across the square and going into a different shop or into the underground, into the bus station. Just so the Buddha could see you know, how consciousness separates from the body and the body dies and then the mind, the consciousness, the reconnecting into a new body, getting attached to a new body and a new life starting. And he could even see what are the karmic causes and conditions that they go for this body, that they go for this level of rebirth, either if they have done good karma, becoming a deva, an angel, a god, a brahma, if they have done bad karma, being reborn as a hungry ghost or even in hell or as an animal. He could watch that all, he could see it. And his nibida, his disenchantment would be growing. And then in the last watch of the night, towards dawn, 
he turned his mind to the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. He contemplated Dukkha, Samudaya, Niroda and Magga. The Dukkha is suffering, old age, sickness, death, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, being separated from loved ones. In short, the whole five groups of clinging, body, feeling, perception, intention and consciousness, all is ultimately disappointing. The first noble tools of suffering. And with this sharp wisdom, based on the clarity of the fourth jhana samadhi and that strong mindfulness, it could discern the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering and old age, sickness, death and rebirth. And he identified the cause as craving, tanha, the craving, the desire, the attachment, the defilement in our heart. He could see this is actually the cause of all the suffering. And having identified the cause of suffering, then the Buddha was able to remove the cause from his heart. He could cut out craving. He could destroy the defilements. He could abandon and let go of attachment. And the moment he let go of defilements, of kilesas, in particular craving, that moment also Dukkha collapsed. Now that is a basic truth now of causality. If you remove the cause, then the result now will also be removed. It's a very similar approach to a doctor when they give you treatment. Let's say someone comes to the doctor and they're coughing, they have fever. So coughing and fever, that is dukkha, so to speak. And now the doctor is investigating the cause. And one cause, I have to be careful because all the doctors here that I don't say anything wrong. One cause of coughing and fever, I believe, could be pneumonia. Is that correct? And then you investigate further because it could also have some other reasons. And I actually learned that it's actually not so easy to diagnose 100% pneumonia, but you can listen probably and check other things. And a good doctor then can make the diagnosis. And if the diagnosis is pneumonia, that means the cause of the sickness is a particular bacterium. Is it, doctor? What is a bacterium? Pneumococcus. So pneumococcus is actually the cause of that pneumonia. So now you have identified the cause of your sickness. What is the doctor doing next? Treating. He has to remove the cause. So giving antibiotics, I believe. And the antibiotics will remove the pneumococcus. And once the pneumococcus is gone, will the pneumonia continue? No, no. Once the cause is gone, 
the beside is also gone. It's the same with the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. All the pain you experience, all the disappointment, the real cause is not your spouse. The real cause is not your mother-in-law. The real cause of all your suffering is not your boss, not your kids and that they fail the exam. It's not even the politicians. This is why even when the different ones get voted in, next time you will still suffer. <laughs> suffering will be there as long as a cause of suffering is there. And this is no one outside. It's not the bad weather. It's not the war. Ultimately, the deep cause of all suffering is craving, desire, attachment. And just like we can remove the cause of the pneumonia with antibiotics, so you can use wisdom, not antibiotics, but the sword of wisdom to cut away craving, desire and attachment. The moment you remove the cause and all your suffering will be gone, finished, over, forever, can't come back. And the fourth noble truth is the path, how to do that. Because the next thing you're probably going to ask, but how do I remove that craving? How do I cut it off with wisdom? You develop gradually that noble eightfold path. Wide view, wide intention, wide communication, wide action. White livelihood, white effort, white mindfulness, and white samadhi. And this is what the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree. Now all eight factors came together. At the moment he removed craving, cut it off with a sort of wisdom, that very moment suffering collapsed and he was free from suffering, he was free from rebirth, he was free from death. And he was sitting there and now he was really the Buddha. And the moon was setting in the back in the west and the sun was coming up, just like behind you now, the sun is actually out. The sun was coming up in the east across the river Nevandrana and the sun would shine on the newly awakened Sama Sambuddha. What would he do next? You probably feel if you were to crack it, you would probably immediately put it on your Facebook, ne? on Instagram, and sent out a tweet. Oh, funny, I cracked it. But is that really what someone who is freed from all craving would be doing? Rushing off and telling everyone, oh, I'm enlightened now. Is that what someone with that equanimity and freedom would do? The Buddha did nothing of that. What did he do instead? 
Exactly. He would sit down again and he would just bless out experiencing the bliss of complete release, of complete freedom for a whole week. He would sit in the full lotus under the Bodhi tree for a whole week unmoving and just blessing out so happy that he's finally free. And then he would get up and would walk. Because in sitting so long after one weakness got to give some movement to the body. And he would contemplate in a dependent origination, Paticca Samapada, Anuloma Patiloma, how the whole universe arises in our own conscious experience, starting from ignorance, delusion, to a karmic sankhavas, to consciousness, name and form, and so on, down to birth and suffering and death, and patiloma, and the end of it, or with the end of craving and ignorance, is the end of intentional formations, is the end of consciousness, is the end of name and form. The end of name and form is the end of the six sense spheres. The end of the six sense spheres is the end of sense contact. If there's no sense contact, that's the end of feeling. If there's no feeling, that's the end of craving. Without craving, no clinging. Without clinging, no karmic rebirth process. Without karmic rebirth process, no rebirth without rebirth, no suffering. Now this is the most profound intellectual expression. Now he would put into words now, as far as you can, the most accurate description of what he had experienced on a non-verbal level. He wasn't thinking when his heart was released. This was on a much more refined level than thinking. But now when he was walking and contemplating, and he was expressing it as far as, far as one can to communicate it to others and to make it clear in his own mind how to verbally express it as far as one can. And then he would sit down straight away under a different tree and bliss out for another week. <laughs> and then for another week. And then for another week. And only then, after he got invited by Brahma Sahampati, motivated by that and looking around and seeing that there are beings who can understand what he is trying to teach, only then he started teaching. Once he had you know, granted the request of Brahma Sampati, you have to be very grateful to that high spirit doing that job for us that the Buddha started teaching. And he continued for 45 years, walking all over India, 
being willing not to put up with all the difficulties, accusations, um, misbehaving monks, misbehaving nuns, jealous ascetics from other traditions, and continuously teaching, motivated by great compassion, and in this way, ferrying thousands, hundreds of thousands, and over time, a million people, millions of people, across the ocean of Sangsava to the far shore. But this is the thing which is so inspiring. When we see you know, all this suffering in Ukraine, when we see all the disasters here in Sri Lanka right now, and we recollect another you know, two years of the pandemic and lockdowns and people dying. The way out of all of that has been found. I mean, if someone had you know, the perfect cure against coronavirus, or maybe the perfect cure against cancer, and everyone would be dancing in the street with joy, isn't it? If suddenly someone found the perfect cure for cancer, cheap, no side effects, any cancer could be cured, everyone would be over the moon. But what the Buddha found is not just the cure for cancer, he found the cure for any disease, any illness. And on top of it, he found the cure for death even. This exceptional human being, uh, under the Bodhi tree, he discovered uh, the escape even from death. He discovered a state which we all can experience in our own heart, where even death cannot reach, where no suffering, no pain can possibly reach. And uh, any human being following his teaching can experience that. And this for me seems to be the most important message. Now when we recollect the Buddha meditating under the tree and defeating the army of Mawa, what I describe now, from the internal struggle of abandoning, craving is often metaphorically expressed now, by the whole army of Mawa assaulting the Buddha externally. Now, so the meaning is basically the same. One is a symbolic and external expression of the supreme struggle against defilements. And the other one is what really happens internally, defeating, craving, ignorance and desire and hatred and all kalesas. That is very inspiring. We feel strong faith. We feel uplifted in contemplating that. But what makes it even better is that this is not just something for the Buddha to do. And there's thousands and thousands and millions in the last 2,500 years who have done the same thing. And it's so much easier now because we have the map, we have the instructions. It's just like Arriving in a city you haven't been, and maybe you're traveling to Paris, and then you hire a car, and then you drive around and find your way. Would you find that easy? 
driving in Paris. They also have their particular French style of driving. <laughs> and would you find that easy, finding your way through Paris in your car? Or would you find it maybe easier if you have GPS and you put on the GPS? Big difference, isn't it? Very big difference. So what the Buddha was doing, driving in a completely new place and finding the exact white spot without a map, without GPS, very, very difficult. What we have to do is just switching on the GPS. What is a GPS? Well, the teaching of the Buddha and all the great Kubajans, the Eightfold Path. And we have all the instructions. And you only have to follow them and you will arrive at the same deathless state. You will have it right in your heart. No one can take it away. And even Mara, even death, can't get you anymore. So that's what's on offer. Please, grab it. The doors to the deathless are open. They have been opened 2,500 years ago. Have you ever tried to buy some special offer on the internet? And sometimes you know, they give you this countdown, 30 hours special offer, 40% off. And you quickly get your credit card, isn't it, to get it on special. It's quite similar, because the Buddha never widely opened the doors to the deathless. And for the last 2,500 years, now they're slowly closing, slowly closing. So please make sure that you sneak through there before it locks. Because they lock for a long time. They lock for millions and millions of years until another Buddha comes. And if you're quick in getting these special offers, now I trust you'll even be much more quicker to make it to the deathless. So that would be my hope and wish and blessing to all of you on this Vesak day that you can realize the same state of freedom, release, peace, Nibbana the Buddha had in his heart. And it's amazing, the sun is shining after this extreme weather event and endless rain, the sun is bright out and shining just for the Vesak event. So that's what I got to offer, a few reflections, a few of my ideas on the theme of the Buddha's Sama Sambodhi. Any questions, any comments? Oh yeah, someone is expressing her amazement how the Buddha could, how the Buddha's mind could store the memory of millions of lifetimes. And I think the reason is that it's not stored in the brain. I wouldn't, wouldn't be using the brain for that memory. I can't imagine that, because I cannot see how the exact, because it's detailed, would be details. 
And I cannot see you know, how, how one brain could possibly store the memory of millions of lifetimes in detail. I agree on that. So this is why the mind in deep samadhi doesn't really depend on the brain anymore. That is at least my interpretation. And I think also um, sometimes it has been shown that that is ECC, no? where you measure the brain waves. The better your meditation, the more the ECC goes to zero. And once you have got the really juicy samadhi, then there's only only zero. It's not even breathing anymore no? in fourth jhana. Breathing even stops. No, but uh, the Buddha also warned if you try to get your mind around that, to try to understand with the intellectual mind, the powers that come from jhana, like these abhinyas, these idis, you, you would just go crazy. You cannot understand that with the rational mind. The normal rational thinking intellectual mind cannot understand the range of powers that come from deep samadhi. And in this case, it's the Buddha, and that is another unthinkable. And if you try to with your normal thinking mind, trying to understand the powers of a Buddha, you will not be able to comprehend it. You rather turn insane than understanding it that way. But what you can understand, what you can see, and you can see the Buddha, so to speak, and you realize the Dhamma in your heart. He who sees the Buddha, she who sees the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. I'm still blown away by the sunshine. You don't see that so much. No? I usually I've got the better side. I usually have only the shed and so on. But uh, right now I can see how the sun is shining. Okay, maybe we end with a short chant and a blessing to all of you. May wisdom, enlightenment arise in your heart like the sun coming out on Vesak after the extreme weather event. Mahakaruniko nato hitaya sapapaninam puretva padami sapa pato samudhimottamang etena satchavachina sotite otu sapata jayanto bodhiyamole sakyanang nandivatano evam to Vang Vijayo Hijayasu Jaya Mangale Aparajita Palanke Tise Patavi Pokare Apise Kesapabotana Nagapato Pamodati Sunakatang Sumangalang Supabatang Sotitang Sokano Sumoto Chasoyetang Pahmachari Supadakinang Kayakamang Vachakamang Padakinang Padakinang Manokamang Panini de Padakina 
Padakinanikatavanalabantate Padakinim